You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Wesley. We're continuing in kind of this little mini-series that we thought was going to be like two weeks and now has come to six weeks. So uh, eventually we'll, uh, we'll move on from here. But we're going to learn about the church today as we continue kind of this series from looking at after Easter, Pentecost, to how the Holy Spirit comes and indwells His people and the power of the Holy Spirit through His people, and then to see how God works salvation in and through us. And that was witnessed by our baptism Sunday a few weeks ago. And then from there, how the Spirit works in our lives and how Jesus works in our lives to sanctify us in, as we persevere through this life. And last week we saw that even though we are persevering in this life, that we have an enemy and that there is real spiritual warfare, but God, who is greater than the one in this world, has come and he has empowered his church to pre- prevail against that. And today we're going to see the church, who we are, why we exist, and really why we need one another. Now, I think this is very applicable, especially after the news that we share today. Now, we have a great understanding of who the church is, why we exist. Because every time we move into a new meeting space and we experience growth, the good things of growth, we begin to think, well, how will this change us? How will we be different now that we're in a different place? How will this affect our relationships? How will this affect the way in which we function when we have updated speakers and we have better seating capacity and we're not crammed in a little room? How is that going to affect who we are as a church? What I want to see is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he will continue to move his church along regardless of where we physically inhabit The reality is we've had several different meeting spaces throughout our history. And let me just take you down memory lane. If you are new to the church, you probably don't know a lot of these places. But we actually first met in a house, believe it or not, a house in Eckington. uh, And we met in this living room, as you can see in the next picture there. Good old Lee Willard leading us in prayer. Uh, it uh, It was a really intimate setting. We had these Bible studies in a little house. And then the Lord provided us to move out of there into a hotel in Noma. The courtyard Marriott, so, so nice. Uh, we met in one of the little conference rooms. Uh, back in the day, we didn't wear suits. There you go, guys. Um, there, there is proof of that. And, uh, and we would gather there in small numbers to worship Jesus. And then from there, we moved to a church in Northwest into their funeral chapel, which was a very strange place to meet. Uh, we, <laughs> we were only there for like a month, and thank God for only there for a month, because uh, it wasn't the best. And then from there, we moved to the International Spy Museum, the old local location in Chinatown, right? We've had quite the journey. Uh, and there, uh, look, not, not a suit again for Ben. Look at that. We had good fashion choices back in the day. Uh, we met in their foyer to their conference room because we were so poor, we couldn't actually afford the conference room. So they put us in the little hors d'oeuvre section, like the, 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 you know, you see right there the back wall. That's the steps leading into the conference room. That was our stage. Okay. So like we, uh, we inhabited this little small space and it was great for the season that we were there. And then the Lord opened up a school downtown called Basis DC. And we started meeting here with 30 people, as you can see on the next slide, in our first service. And the Lord, as uh, someone coined the seating of the five, the miracle of the seating of the 5,000 in this room, uh, the Lord has grown us from 30 to 300 in this space. And the reality is, wherever we go from here, the truth of who we are as the church does not change. The same mission, the same 
a, a fact about who we were existed in that tiny house in Eckington as it will and wherever we go from here. And I know we ask ourselves the question, well, how will this change us? How, how, will, how will this help us? And it will help us. We need a building. And the Lord has provided. But ultimately, the physical space that we inhabit is not defining who we are as the church. The things that we have, the equipment we have, the, the, the way in which we look, the, the great musicians we have, all these things are, are, are great and they're blessings from the Lord. But they do not define who we are. And they do not define why we need the church. And today, what Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us is those two things. That we are the church and that we all need the church. That's precisely our main point that we're going to drive home today through some metaphors that, that Paul is building on at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. To not forget that we are the church, the people of God, we are the church. And as we look at the reality of who we are as the church, we will see that we need the church. We need one another. Our outline's going to flow straight from the text. We're going to look at three truths about the church and why we need it. Number one, the church is a united people. Number two, the church has an unshakable foundation. And number three, the church is enlivened with God's presence. And before we dive into Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, let's get just a little background of where we are in the text, because Ephesians 2 has been building the momentum to the end of the chapter. And it begins in, in verses 1 through 10 as Paul is outlining for us what God does in our individual lives. That he comes in, in power into the brokenness of this world, into the brokenness of our lives, and he redeems us. He makes us alive in Christ. And that's really what, what verses 1 through 10 teach us. But then something remarkable happens in verses 11 through 22. A after that, Paul begins to expound upon how the power of God is displayed in his people. That God takes these individuals that he has redeemed, and then he places them into this new humanity, he says. This new community of people a community where Jew and Gentile are united as one. And what he's saying there is essentially this, that there are no barriers anymore in the church. That the church defines who we are and it brings people who otherwise would not be in the same community together. It unites us. It makes us as one. That's why when we think about the church, we think about this, this, this organism, we think about this organization, it is really this new humanity. It's not a club, right? We love to have clubs in life because clubs are things that we have in common, Right? Weight Watchers, anyone? Okay, so like we, uh, you know, we, we want to lose weight. We have something in common. We join a club. Some of you like to run. You join a club, right, to run. You're crazy, but you love to do it, right? You join CrossFit because you want to work out. You, you have something of interest that binds you together. But the church is not just a club. It's not just something we have common interests. The church is this organization that even though despite our differences, we bring those things into the church. And although we still maintain the uniqueness of who we are, we have something that binds us together that is greater than any other commonality on this planet. It supersedes our race, our socioeconomic class, our vocations, our political ideologies, all the things that we held in common with other people. We come to the church and we're united in a way that is greater than all of that. And that's really what Paul has been establishing here with this relationship between Jew and Gentile being united as one in the, to this new humanity. And then we get to verse 19, and he begins to expound upon these metaphors. Verse 19, so then, after he's expressed all of this, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
So he begins to describe the church as these foreigners, these strangers, these aliens. What he's talking about there is someone who is a cultural or linguistic outsider. Perhaps you found yourself in this situation before where you're in a land where you don't know the language, right? Some of us within 24 hours are going to feel that, uh, those who are going on a mission trip this week. You don't know the culture. You don't know anyone. You don't know how to communicate with people. You don't know how to understand how to get around. You're a foreigner. You're an alien. You're a stranger. It could be a really uncomfortable experience, and it could also be a very lonely experience. Paul says that's who you once were, but you are no longer that. Now, he's not talking about that they were actually physically not in their native land, right? They were. They knew the language. They were surrounded by people they grew up with. What he's talking about is something deeper, that spiritually, in this world, we are foreigners. We are strangers. Because the human soul, the human heart, is only at home when it's at home in God. The pleasure of this world cannot satisfy that. It cannot satisfy the deep, deepest desires and the longings of our hearts. So we wander through this life as exiles, as homeless, as strangers and foreigners. And Paul says that's not who we are anymore. We've been united by Christ. We've been brought in. Christ has united a group of people who were once strangers, who were once aliens, who were once foreigners, and he has united us as one people. And then he begins to use these illustrations to help us understand this. He says that we are like citizens of a kingdom. We're like members of a household. And then thirdly, we're like, uh, like t- uh, stones being built up into a temple. Now, I think what he's doing here is actually expounding upon these things, and we'll see that each one of these metaphors actually build up to a closer intimacy and a closer unity we have. Consider this. If we're members of the same household, or excuse me, if we were actually citizens of the same country, we have a, a decent amount of unity. At least we should, right? Uh, we, we say pledge, pledge leads to the same flag. Uh, we share the same law. We pay taxes, at least some of us do. Um, <laughs> we, do we have things that, that de- de- define us and unify us in some way. Right? Think of a household. You, you even have a greater sense of unity with a household. You share the same last name, and oftentimes you share the same values. But think of this. When you are a stone being built into a temple, you have even a greater closeness and a greater unity. Because we can live in the same country and we can disagree on political policy. We can live in the same household and you can have a brother and sister who are fighting, who are at odds at each other and go to vacation, don't talk to each other, right? They're still members of the same household. But you can't have two stones that are having a falling out with one another. Because two stones that have a falling out with one another don't exist to be a wall anymore. They don't exist to be the structure in which they were called to form. They have no function at all. That's precisely what Paul is getting at. What is the function of a building? Why are we stones being built up in a temple? Well, a building is to help shelter us from the elements. Praise God, we're in a building today, right? Because we don't want 300 people sitting out in the scorching heat right now. (laughs) We're in a building because a building functions. Walls come together. That's the best amen I've gotten all day. Uh, (laughs) Walls come together and buildings come together when stones are cemented to one another. They're, They're brought close to one another in such a way they build up a structure that protects us from the elements. In essence, one stone can't keep you from feeling the scorching heat. One stone can't keep the rain from beating down on your head. One stone can't keep you safe from the elements. If stones are separated, if they're far apart from one another, they have no function at all. And it's precisely what Paul's getting at here, that the concept that we often say here at King's Church is that you can't have a Lone Ranger Christianity. You can't try to live the Christian life all by yourself. 
If you do, you can't begin to function the way God has intended you to function. When we live by ourselves, we're not accountable to other Christians, when we're not bearing others' burdens, when other people are not allowed to bear our burdens, when we become a privatized, individualized Christian, we are violating the very way in which God has created us to function. And Paul shows this in this illustration of citizens united into a kingdom, of members of a household united into a family, and ultimately of stones being built up side by side. When a stone is being built into a structure, there is no distance at all. They're cemented to each other. And what Paul is illustrating here is that what happens in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is the cement that binds us together. That the most powerful voice that joins us together today is the gospel. Culture is a powerful force. If you grow up in the same country, you're going to find affinity with people who grew up in that culture in that country. Family is a powerful force that shapes us. Who your parents are, who your siblings are, what they taught you right from wrong. Those are things that are powerful forces that shape us. But there's nothing more powerful than what the gospel does in our lives. It makes us a whole new person. It completely rearranges our identity. It changes our outlook on life and the way we look at everything else. And as a result, we are cemented together. We are bound together. We are united together as building blocks are cemented together to build up a structure. So the question becomes for us today, do we see ourselves as stones that are needing to be built in? Do we see ourselves as stones needing to be cemented in, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves? Or are we treating the church as just a drop-in center? We come and we go as we please. It's not a club. It's not Weight Watchers. It's a new humanity. It's a family. Citizens of the same kingdom. Stones being built up into the same structure. And the very thing that defines us as this unified body being built up is the very reason why we need each other. To have true unity is to have transparency. I mean, think of it this way. When you grow up in a family, you're members of the household, you can't have facades, right? People know you intimately. Like, I know my kids very intimately, right? I had to change their diapers. Like, there's, there's a lot of intimacy there, right? We know each other very well. And when you grow up in a household, you can't hide from people. They know you. They know everything, the ins and outs of who you are, and you know the ins and outs of who they are. And the same is true in the church. We need transparency. We need it more than we realize. It's a part of who we are. When Paul says that we are being built up as members of God's household, he's saying that we are built into a family where there's true spiritual transparency, where people know you. And they don't just know things about you. They know you, and you know them. They know you because you've told them. They know you because you're willing to open up your lives to one another. You're willing to share the deepest faults and struggles of your life. We can't walk through life privatizing our struggles and our faults. Because a household functions on transparency, on trust. And it's built on a God who forgives us. But being united is not just about transparency, it's also about pursuing God together. Notice again the temple imagery here. He doesn't say that God's presence comes and dwells individually in each stone necessarily. He talks about how the stones, when God's presence comes, is built up into a temple collectively. Meaning that we don't just privatize our spiritual walk with the Lord. We say, God, how are we together praying as a church? How are we together walking through life as a church? How are we together building each other up? We have the same mission. 
Now, understand, it's, it's common in life, right? Uh, one of the things that, that we're taught, even socialized to believe, at least my generation was growing up, is there are things that you don't talk about oftentimes uh, around the dinner table and out in public, and that is your religion, and that's your politics, unless you live in D.C., and that's different, right? <laughs> uh, but, but growing up, that, those were things that you just you didn't talk about. Uh, and I understand the, 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 the temptation to feel like it's common for us to privatize our faith. And we don't need to talk about it with other people. We don't express what God's teaching us, what we're praying about, what we're learning in God's word together. But Paul says this is absolutely vital to who we are. And I know the temptation sometimes in my life is because I go through seasons where I feel like my life's just not very spiritually empowered, right? I feel almost embarrassed to share that with others. Or perhaps it's just awkward and not comfortable to share that with others. But it's vital to Paul that we do just that, that we approach God together that we pray with one another, that we talk about what God is doing in our lives together. If you really think about your life, the moments that God works most powerfully through and in our lives is typically with relationships of others. He works in the life of the church super powerfully in a way that, that brings renewal into our souls. The church is a mess. We're going to get it wrong at times. We're going we're gonna to hurt one another. It's part of life. But to say that we want to have a relationship with God and not a relationship with this church is to create a God who doesn't exist in the Bible. Because God says that he has created us not just to, to save us individually, but to save us as a people. To move us in the direction we are united as one people. But then he continues with these metaphors. He says we're not just united as a people, but we're built on something. We have this unshakable foundation. Look at verse 20. He says, the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Now, I don't know if you're in construction. Most of you probably are not. Uh, but the most boring part of construction is the foundation of a building. Like, let's just be honest. It's not very pretty. It's not very exciting. When you watch Chip and Joanna do renovations on the houses, right, they skip past all the renovation parts on the foundation, and they just go straight to, like, how the building actually looks inside, the finished product, because uh, those are the things that, that really uh, excite us about a new building. When a new structure is being built, the, the foundation is nonsense. It's like nobody wants to really think about the foundation, but all the things that we build on top of it won't exist if there's no foundation. The foundation is absolutely necessary. The stones cannot be held together in the church without a solid foundation unless we all have the same foundation. So Paul says we have a foundation. He says that foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Now, what is he referring to here? Most believe he's referring to the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's referring to the Bible, God's written word. That is what we build our foundation upon. Now, when you look in the Old Testament, you look at the prophets, you see these wonderful men and women of God. You, you don't see them speaking and saying, hey, I'm a great one, listen to me. You don't hear them saying, like, I, I'm from heaven, listen to me. Like, if some people say that, they're probably a cult leader, right? <laughs> but you hear people like Jeremiah say, it's like fire in my bones, thus says the Lord. This is not my idea. This is not from my study. This is not from my intellect. This is from the Lord. And you go over the New Testament, you see the, the apostles, the same is true of their character. You see the apostle Paul, he says, I am the least of all apostles. And yet when he speaks, he says things like, if you listen to my word, you should acknowledge that I'm writing to you the things that are commanded from the Lord, not me. Or if you disregard what I am writing, you're not disregarding men, but you're disregarding God. In essence, the apostles and the prophets realized they were not giving their opinions or their insights or, or the, the, the things that they studied and came up with. 
they realized that they were speaking from God. And that's really how we look at the Bible. The Bible is not just the chief source of truth about God. It is the word from God. It is the solid foundation we need. And once the foundation has been laid, the house can be built. But you cannot have a foundation that is not secure if you want to have a house that is built. And when you lay a foundation, you can't add or subtract to that foundation. And the same is true. Paul is saying here, the idea is that God's word is our solid foundation because it's unchanging. It's solid. It doesn't move. The foundation of the apostles and prophets is our foundation because it is unshakable. And I know the temptation for every generation is to come to the realization that perhaps maybe it's not that unshakable. Perhaps maybe it's not true, right? Perhaps maybe this I love that they said, but this I don't agree with. And to say that is, to, is like saying you have a house and your housemate says, don't go in the kitchen because there's a hole all the way to the basement because the foundation is not good, that part of the house. We can't do that. The Bible is our foundation. And to realize why is this sturdy foundation is because Paul says it is something that is absolutely consistent, totally reliable, checked throughout, never letting us down, totally sufficient. Why? Because the Bible is not just an intellectual truth about God. The Bible is about Jesus. It's about a person. That's why Paul says that the word of the apostles, the prophets, that foundation, what is being built on? The chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself. Now, again, if you're not in construction, you may not realize this, but the chief cornerstone is actually pretty important. It is the most crucial block in the foundation. In other words, you cannot have a foundation without it. Things will not hold together without it. In the Christian life, we believe this about Jesus Christ. If he is not the center of our lives, then we can't have him at all. He has to be the foundation, the chief cornerstone. And when we know that he is our foundation, when he becomes that chief cornerstone, then we realize that we can't think without him. We can't feel without him. We can't go through life without him. We can't do this or that without him because he is ultimately the center of our lives and he is the chief cornerstone of the foundation of the church. And that is why we say the church is unshakable. It's secure because the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, has shown the ultimate sacrifice for us. You see, when the Bible talks about this cornerstone, this idea of the cornerstone, uh, Paul's actually drawing on Old Testament prophecy that there will be this cornerstone that the prophets prophesied, and that cornerstone would, re, uh, would redeem us by being rejected. Psalm 118 says that the builders will reject the stone. That will be the cornerstone. And here we're seeing that in a land where we're foreigners and aliens and strangers, Jesus Christ has shown the most ultimate act of love in human history. It is our foundation. His sacrificial love is our foundation because though we were foreigners, though we were outside the household of God, God, through Jesus Christ, has brought us in. Because Jesus went outside the gate of Jerusalem to be crucified in the cold, because he was abandoned and experienced loneliness so that we could be brought into the household of faith. That is why he's our cornerstone. Because he was rejected, we are restored. Because he was rejected, we are, re we are secured. Because he was rejected, he laid the foundation for us to be built on something that is unshakable. 
And yes, I understand that people will say, well, how can you believe this ancient text? I mean, we're here in 2022. We have modern ideas. How can you believe this word to be true? Well, guess what? 2022 is going to be someone's distant past. And they're going to look at our society and say, how did you believe those things? Every generation has those people. But what stands for eternity is the word of God. And that word of God is built on the cornerstone of what Christ has done for us. It is the linchpin of our faith. Seasons change. Times will change. Cultures will change. Buildings will change. The word of God is unshakable. It's unchangeable. It is our firm foundation. And some of us may feel like in our lives right now, we're, we're more like the Leaning Tower of Pisa right now than we are a sturdy house, right? My question is, are, are we allowing the word of God to be our foundation? You see, when you lay a, a stone on a foundation, it has to cover fully on the foundation or else it's not going to be sturdy. Is every aspect of your life being laid on the foundation of God's word? Or is there something you're hanging off right now? So then you're not willing to give over to the Lord. To say that he is our cornerstone is to say that he is our Lord. He is master. He is the one building us up. And there is no greater security in this life to know that you have a foundation that is unshakable. That is the promise of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of the church. But then thirdly, we see through these metaphors that the church is not just this united people, that we need each other because of that. It's not just that we are a structure that has this unshakable foundation and we need each other because of that. But the church is enlivened with God's presence. Verse 20 again, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see this wonderful image of the temple, this idea of a holy temple reminds us that not only do we have intimacy with one another, but we have the very real presence of God. Again, as citizens, these, these image, images help us, right? As citizens, we have some access to our leaders, right? Uh, as family members, as children, you have access to your father. You have closeness to your father, but ultimately you're still independent from your father. But see, as stones being built into a temple, God's very presence indwells us. A king cannot indwell his citizens. A father cannot indwell his children, but God through the Spirit indwells us. There is an intimacy, there is a unity here that far exceeds anything else in life, which means that if God's living presence is in us, the church is never dead, but is always living. So no matter what four walls we encompass, we carry the living God with us. He goes where we go. He moves in our midst. We know him intimately. We know his love. We know his power. We know his touch. Now, again, if you live that close in proximity with someone, you get to know each other pretty well, right? I mean, if you're married in the house, you know this very well. If you have brothers and sisters, you know this very well. If you have roommates, you know this very well. To some degree, they will see fully who you are. Hopefully not everything, but they'll see fully who you are when you live in close proximity with others, right? And that's precisely what God is saying here, that there's familiarity. 
that the church is alive with the presence of God means that God and humanity once again dwell together. And we need this. You see, in the the Garden of, of Eden, we're reminded that even in the goodness of everything God created, as Adam had perfect harmony with God, he still looks at Adam and he says, it's not good for you to be alone. Now, if Adam, who had no sin, experienced the burden of loneliness, how much more are we going to deal with that, right? We need one another because God's presence invites us into a relationship where he never leaves us, he never forsakes us. And even though that closeness was lost at the Garden of Eden, we're reminded again that that humanity wants to be their own masters and they're kicked out of the garden. And what happens at that entrance point of the garden? There's an angel of the Lord standing there with a sword. And it's a reminder for us to get back in that presence. Something has to happen. Someone has to pay a price. Someone has to take that sword for us to have that intimacy again. And throughout creation, we have been yearning to be in the presence of God. It is part of who we are, how God has created us to be. So Moses on Mount Sinai, as we learned at the beginning of this year, he cries out, show me your glory, Lord. I want to know your glory. But, But God says, if I show you fully who I am, it'll kill you. Because every step we've moved away from the garden, the presence of God, which was once so close to us that we walked in the cool of the day with God, becomes terrifying to us. Because the closer we get to God, the closer we see his bigness and our smallness. The closer we get to God, we see his holiness and our unholiness. God says, it will kill you, but I'll be near to you. And so in the Old Testament, he sets up the tabernacle, he sets up the temple, and no one could dwell in those places. Only God's glory dwells in those places, but people could come near to those places. And if they were going to visit those places, something had to happen. A sacrifice had to take place for them to visit the presence of God. But then the New Testament comes, and Jesus comes on the scene, and we see that Jesus is described as our temple, and that we are the temple. What does that mean? That showcases that something has happened that has changed the way in which we are able to relate to the dwelling presence of God. That Jesus was the sacrifice that allows us full access to God. We once again have the access to God's presence that Adam once had in the garden. That Moses yearned for, that Abraham yearned for, but could not have. God's spirit indwells his church. We don't need anything else, church. At the end of the day, I pray that we have a bigger building. We do. We pray that we can actually seat everyone. Thank you for those of you who are standing in the back. We really appreciate it. We pray that the Lord continues to grow us. We pray that the Lord continues to bless this church. But at the end of the day, what we need is the very presence of the living God. And he says here that we have that. That he dwells with his people because Jesus took the sword for us. His sacrifice allows us very access to the presence of God in our lives. And so today, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of that. We're reminded that his body was broken, his blood was poured out so that we could have the living presence of God with us, which means that today, church, we are alive. No matter what oppositions we face, no matter what struggles we face, no matter what challenges we'll face in the future, no matter what hurt we'll face in the future, the very presence of God dwells in us. And the promise is sure that one day in Revelation 21, when the new Jerusalem comes, we will be again walking in the cool of the day with our God. We will again one day be in the unhindered presence of God where the Lamb and the Lord will be present and his glory will shine forth like the waters that cover the bottom of the sea. 
And that presence, we get a foretaste of that now as the church. That he is with us. And that he will continue to be with us no matter where we go from here. So what does it mean to have the, the, the Holy Spirit in your life? What does it mean to be the temple of the Holy Spirit? What well, means to, to trust in that firm foundation, Jesus Christ? Today, you can have the very living presence of God with you. He is in our midst. He is inviting you. He is saying, come to me. I will be your foundation. I will be your cornerstone. I have made that sacrifice for you to come into my presence. The veil has been ripped. The access is there. Come to me. That is the promise today. That if you want to know the living God real and intimately, you can have that today and you can experience it in the joy of being a part of his people, the church. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.